Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Today, my guest is Patrick O'Donnell, who's going to talk about his best-selling book, Dog Company, the boys of Point du Hoc, the Rangers who accomplished D-Day's toughest mission and led the way across Europe. Uh, Rangers worked together as one powerful force. Their actions at Point du Hoc saved countless lives and was the major turning point of the war. Without their efforts, we may have lost against the Nazis. In this book, Dog Company, it's such a wonderful recollection of different stories that were conducted personally by many of the men who served. And, you know, it it takes a true gift to be able to capture someone's story and retell it as though you're actually in their shoes. And for those of you that really enjoy history and also especially stories about um, the military, you're going to really love this book. I personally enjoyed it very much. I mean, it's humorous. It's touching. There, there's so many different emotions that go through you, and it really makes you so proud to be American. So I would like to welcome to the show Patrick O'Donnell. Good afternoon, and welcome to the show, Patrick. Good afternoon. It's really a pleasure to be on the show with you today. And thanks so much for you know reading the book and enjoying it. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to um, just discussing it with you. Thank you. And, you know, you have an amazing background. Could you please share with our audience uh, some of your achievements, as well as some of your other award-winning books. Um, I've written eight books. This is the eighth book I've written. I've written six books on World War II, one on Korea, and a book on uh, Fallujah, where I was embedded with a Marine rifle platoon as a combat historian. So I've been in combat. Um, but really, the, this has been a, an ongoing project for the last 20 years, where I've been gathering the stories of America's veterans, uh, beginning with World War One, and then going all the way to Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, the story has always been the story for my books. It's been trying to capture the stories of America's veterans in their own words, oral history primarily. Um, and it began, really, my this whole sort of journey that I had began when I was about four or five years old, and I picked up this magazine called The History of World War II. It was a series of 140 like weekly parts, and I would collect these magazines with my father every week. And I just began, I immersed myself in World War II. I had a library where it was about 12, 500 books or more. And this, my interest just grew and grew. And I got out of college, and I sort of te- took the leap from books and magazines to actually interviewing people and that was a very powerful event for me in my life i i I really there's one it's one thing to read about it but there's another when somebody tells you Mm. 
experience. It's sort of a magical thing. And that began this incredible journey um, where I was entrusted with their stories. And it began with the 82nd Airborne Division, and it went into the Rangers and Marine Corps and sort of the elite units of World War II and later um, elite units in, in uh, America's Armed Forces. I'm an expert on special operations and counterinsurgency and things like that. Did you have a lot of military in your family? We had a, a fair amount, but it wasn't overwhelming. My father served in, in the Navy, and I had some relatives in World War II. Um, but it was not... It wasn't what you'd expect um, in the sense that we had this kind of military family. We never really did at all. It just is is something that's been um, part of my life that in some ways I don't really can't explain it, um, mm. but it seems to be like the path I'm meant to be on. Now, you are truly gifted in the art of telling stories, and, I mean, not everybody can tell a story in your opinion, as you were going about conducting your research and talking to these brave gentlemen, what were the things that you looked for in their stories that you felt would be important to your readers as well as to people who are just, you know, the younger generations who are just learning about the events of World War II? I really wanted to bring out the human side, the human interest stories, the stories that are interesting and compelling, and then the side of World War II that you may not have heard about. And that's the side, the sort of like the hidden war, if you will, the feelings and emotions that many of these men carried or bottled up inside. I wanted to capture that. And, you know, on the surface, you'd think of this book as some sort of um, book about great warriors, which it certainly is, men that were led the greatest special operation mission, arguably, of World War II. But it's also about men that had been there, and and the the war and its after effects, and and what what they went through, and it's it's very similar to what men in Korea went through or Vietnam. It's mm. it's an understanding of sort of the un, un the ununderstandable for those that had not been there, and I want to sort of unearth that and and capture that from a World War II perspective, and the boys of Point to Hawk. That's a, it's iconic. It's kind of like the flag raisers of Iwo Jima. But for the European theater, this is about the men that scaled these 90-foot cliffs under direct machine gun fire and hand grenade fire and artillery. And they fought through this maze, this labyrinth on top of Point de Hoc and somehow destroyed the guns that could not be destroyed by you know, nearly a 1,000 Allied bombers and shore bombardment from battleships and everything else. Really, it's incredible how how yeah. individuals or a individual can change the course of history or events, and and that's what uh, that's another big theme in this book is how 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 one person can change everything, and it's it's, it's remarkable. And it's very interesting that you were able to bring out so many little personal details about about each of the gentlemen that you wrote about and just to kind of capture their what made them so significant and memorable uh can you talk about Leonard Lamel is he somebody that I do believe you've become quite close to 
Yeah, he was the mainspring of the book um, in a very close friend since 1997. Sadly, he passed away last year. He was one of the great, great veterans, Mm -hmm. great heroes of World War II. And he was a lawyer after the war, um, very successful man. That he he kind of took he took me under his wing when I first started interviewing the Rangers, and he he helped me with the other Ranger associations and the Man of Dog Company were the the core of of my interviews back in 1997. And I I said to myself I'd always wanted to do a book on on, on Dog Company because they had done they had taken out these big guns on Point to Hog, and Lamel was the one that actually did it himself. He he, the Rangers were equipped these things called thermite grenades, and he they fought their way across the top of Point Dock, and he found the, the guns and disabled them with the grenades. It's really quite un- unbelievable in many ways. And and what happened is about three years ago, I was up in New Jersey on a trip, and I I asked Lynn if I could swing by at the house and, and say hello. And so I did. I went over to his house, which was in Tom's River, New Jersey. He took me through back in time. He showed me his some of the meadows on his, on his wall, uh, patches and things like that. We watched a Yankees game, and I told him I didn't really know what my next book was going to be. And you know, serendipitously, I think that event, which was unplanned, unscheduled, I really had no idea I'd be sitting with him that afternoon and I, I he said, you know, maybe talk company and that's what we that's what I set out to do. I wrote, wanted to write a book about a band of brothers kind of about his mm. and company and <clears throat> and get into the personalities and details of each of these men so that you knew them as you as you went through their story and in 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 their war. Uh, it's very interesting that when you look back at what the Rangers were about. Now, uh, the commandos and Rangers were not ordinary troops, and there was a selective process as well as vigorous training. Can you take a moment and explain to our audience why the Rangers were so unique and also talk about the training? Well, this is in World War II when special operations was in its infancy, and in many ways, it was looked down upon by the regular high command, who who thought that special operations unit were units were bleeding off good troops from the regular infantry, armor forces, etc. So the brass didn't really understand special operations or how to utilize them. And at the time, the Rangers were forming; they were making up their training as they were going along, and they were patterned after British commandos in many ways, but. Lucian Truscott, who was a general at the time, who basically urged Eisenhower to stand up, the Rangers decided that it would not be appropriate to call our our Rangers, if you will, commandos, because that was a very uniquely British term. And in 1940, there was a famous movie on uh, Robert Rogers, who was a, a Ranger in the French and Indian War that did some extraordinary things. And... Um, his nickname by the Indians was the White Devil. So the the, the Rangers were coined from that from from Rogers and his legendary exploits. Exploits, 
and these men trained. And, and it, it, there's also an interesting element to it, too, because the Rangers at the time were in their infancy, and it became kind of a sometimes a dumping ground for undesirable men from other units. They would they would offload their their kind of oddballs. Uh, so you had sort of a dirty dozen feel in mm-hmm. some ways to some of the the men and dog company, but they were all volunteers, and they had to go through a really rigorous training um, regimen to to just make it as a ranger. I mean, it was you know, speed marches that were thirty miles with only a canteen of water and full equipment. And these men did that. But what was really extraordinary is when they shipped over to England, they climbed cliffs that were 100 to 300 feet high for six months. And they did it without safety harnesses. It was just their bare hands and ropes. Yeah, and and even the leg movements were unique just to climb those walls. I mean, it just reading about the intricate details of what their training consisted of, they were like human machines. I mean, today we have so many uh, different things that have been developed, uh, tools and technology and so on and so forth, but these were human beings that, you know, they weren't uh, superhumans. They just, for the most part, actually, some of the men that you wrote about were rejected at first. Um, I, I I got a kick out of what you wrote about William Elrod Petty, <laughs> and he uh, he said, "Hell, I don't want to eat him. I want to fight him because he had uh, fake teeth, his front right. teeth." They didn't want to. They they had some sort of requirement for physical standards, and one of them was that you had to have your front teeth. And and Petty lost his teeth in a bar fight and his front teeth, and they rejected him, even though this guy was an incredible soldier. He turned out to be an incredible soldier, incredible ranger, and uh, he typical ranger in the sense that he wouldn't take no for an answer, and he also was willing to go right straight to authority and went right over to Rudder's, the Colonel Rudder's command post, who was the battalion commander of the 2nd Ranger Battalion, and said, Colonel, why am I being rejected? You don't have your front teeth. And he said to him, I want to... I want to fight him. I don't want to bite him. (laughs) (laughs) Being the Germans. (laughs) And there are a lot of, there were a lot of uh, different humorous components um, from, from many of the gentlemen that you wrote about. Uh, Another, another gentleman was Sergeant Antonio Ruggiero. um, And uh, (laughs) when, or rather, could you tell our audience about, what his response was when he was asked if he had any issues uh, using a knife on on one of the Germans. No, it's great because this this book is about human interest stories, and, and, and it's a cast of characters that are arguably fit for a movie. And this guy, he's one of five Rangers out of the sixty-eight that are still alive. He's ninety-two years old. He lives in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and he's he's amazing. And Rudgy is his nickname. Um, went in to see Colonel Rudder, and he was only five foot three. And his specialty before the war was he was a tap dancer. And he was a professional tap dancer that could just burn up the floor. His nickname was Tommy Knight. The short guy shows up, one of the shortest guys in the Rangers, and the colonel asks him point blank, Would you, how do you feel about killing a guy with a knife? And Budgie's just like, I would just shoot the bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and then they say, well, you know, you're not 
you're not um, big. And he goes, you mean I'm not very tall? <laughs> and then he said uh, to him, you know, he finds out that Ruggiero is the best the best shot on in, out of mm. the entire second ranger battalion of 600 men. He he scores a perfect perfect marksmanship score, and he's a dead eye. He becomes a sniper for Dog Company. And uh, so his body size actually served him well. It did, and he also it's kind of interesting. He um, he later he entertains the troops too. Um, right before D Day, for instance, they put on a show. Everybody is extremely nervous. They're tense. They're they're about to embark on the greatest amphibious assault in, in world history, and they're on the boat and they put on like a comedy show that Ruggiero does, and then he does it after the at the end of the war too. So, you know, he has a lot of really kind of amazing little talents that 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 help the the unit as it goes along. It just goes to show you that once again these gentlemen weren't robots, they were human beings, and they really worked together as a single unit, and not just defending each other and helping each other, but also emotionally supporting one another, and being having a, a, a nurturing type of uh, disposition as well as just adding humor is so incredibly important because the tension is really... Uh, thick, the stress and the anxiety had to have been outrageous, and especially not knowing what's going to happen other than the fact that they knew that it was going to be very, very difficult, but yet they found ways to just find some relief in all the different things that they were trying to juggle all at once. Yeah, that's, that, that was an extraordinary thing. I didn't even, you know, as a historian, I knew their battle exploits. I knew about Point de Hoc, these cliffs at Normandy. I knew about a place like Hill 400, which is in the American Forest. But I never really knew about the, the the comedy skits and things that they put on during the war. And um, I think the most telling thing is how I ended the book, which is Ruggiero was putting on a show, a very big show for many units, including the 2nd Ranger Battalion at the end of the war. The war had been over for a month or so. And they put on this play and he's greeted by a USO officer of high rank that's blown away by the professional quality of the show. And he says to him, you know, where'd you learn how to do that? He's like, well, Hollywood. And they're like, would you join us? I mean, we'll, we'll give you, bump you up in rank, give you more money. And he just looked at him and said, no, I fought, you know, I fought with these men. They've been with me the whole time, and I'm going to go home with them. And that was, a, the, the, these ranger friendships have lasted a lifetime. And especially, I thought what was interesting is, even in the beginning, you quoted Bill Hoffman as making a comment that he, if he's going to fight, he wanted to fight with the best. That is such a profound thought. I mean, especially back during that time when the world was basically in a state of fear because of what was going on with World War II. And, you know, uh, people wanted the war to end. And knowing that they were going to be up against a very, very powerful force, you know, that was that was just really 
amazing. I mean, just to think, well, you know, if you're going to do this, you go with the best. And that was, he really believed that. And, and the thing is, they were trained to think that they were the best. And history has shown that they are one of the great ranger companies in, in history. And it, 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 a lot of it had to do with the way, the sense of competition they had, they were super competitive about everything, all the way mm. from the officers, the enlisted men on every little thing that they did. They were all about winning, and it was all a, it was a winning spirit. They were they were trying to win at all costs in most cases, and um, that translated off into their their life later on too. And how many of these men were very successful. What I found interesting about Hoffman was that here is a real human being that really goes through war, and he has PTSD or shell shock. He's hit by a near-miss by an artillery round, and he's knocked out practically for a little bit, but he is awake, but he can't talk, can't communicate with anybody, just sits there like a ve- in a vegetated mm. state for, for about a day or so, and wakes up and, and then joins the unit again, and then it happens again. And he is out for two days, and um, he can't remember things. It, the, the trauma of of war uh, and what he went through is, um, is it's not what you expect from a main character, if you will, in a World War II book. Um, but many of these men had PTSD and what they had to, you know, do to overcome it. And one of those things that I wanted to capture in this book. Out of all the men that you interviewed and researched, who was the ranger that you feel touched your heart the most and why? That's really a difficult question uh, for me um, because I felt so close to many of these men, uh, Len especially, and then Tom Ruggiero. I, I just love the man. He's, he's so full of life. This um, book is... He's just, you know, it's just great to see this 92-year-old guy driving around Plymouth, Massachusetts, and people see him on the street, and they're like, wow, you know, you're a rock star. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he is. And I, 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 you know, very much respect him. The one I probably thought captured war better than anyone, though, is Bill Elrod Petty. And uh, this is a man that is... The way he's written it, some of the unpublished memoirs and interviews that I did with him, I just I was I was blown away. I mean, this is a guy that said that he would cry when he saw a kitten um, hurt as, as a as a young man, and then somehow had to cope with seeing you know dozens of people die in front of him and not lose it. And he was the one, he was always keeping everybody together in many ways. And there's so many powerful scenes where he, there's two twin brothers, for instance, that are killed on the same day. And they, one of them dies in his arms. And I think the, the most profound the, the story, though, is where he sees this little girl that's, that's laying on a bed in a house, and she has a, some flowers in her hand and stuff. 
And then he goes into the house and he realizes that she's in this dress on the bed and she's beautiful, but he realizes that she's missing a leg and an arm mm. and she's dead. And it just, it hit me, the the just the profound way he told the story. And, you know, I have a daughter and it's just like, I can't even imagine. It just, the... That's right the way that he captured that, and then yeah. and then you know he he's this great warrior that that killed thirty Germans on D Day, but doesn't lose his humanity one death. And I think that's the most you know these guys are not like you said not robots; they're human beings, and their humanity really comes through in in the book. In addition to their bravery, they also had quite a healthy sense of humor. Can you just share some of the more humorous um, thing, some of the humorous things that they did together that uh, you know the audience will find amusing as they read the book? A lot you know, of humor funny. in there, I have to admit. It's I wasn't humor, expecting it's, it. It's humor in it's like you know some of it is almost like if they did this stuff today. Oh yeah. They would never be able to get away with it. Uh, uh, you know. Um, for instance, the demolition guy, the explosives expert, would sometimes take a lighted stick of dynamite and just throw it in front of people, and they they were terrified, and it turned out it was just a harmless cardboard tube with a fuse on it. But, I mean, the guy would have, if that ever happened today, I mean, he would have been discharged from the Army immediately. <laughs> um, Major headliner. There's, there's some really interesting kind of funny humor things there. They they go to this this base where they do um raider training where they learn how to handle small boats down in Florida at Fort Pierce. And everybody is told when they get off the train, they've been on the train for like twelve or fourteen hours and they're all sweaty and stuff. And Fort Pierce is is hot and muggy mm. at this time of the year and they all they're all told do not swim in the ocean under any circumstances. So being rangers, of course, they ignore the order. They dive in, and the place is infested with, you know, jellyfish. <laughs> People are stunned. And uh, they get out, and this is in the dead of the night, and Duke Slater, who's the commanding officer of Dog Company, that everybody has said to me, and even looks like him, Lee Marvin. The guy had this, like, Lee Marvin personality and his orders and everything else. And the Duke, you know says don't go in there and swim but the next day they go on this run and the duke is dirty and sweaty and he goes all right men let's hit the ocean (laughs) and the duke is like the first one in and everybody kind of like doesn't follow him and he doesn't understand why until he's completely stung by all these jellyfish and everybody just they couldn't help they're 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 holding in the fact that they're 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 they want to laugh but they didn't Um, oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, out of, out of respect, but they were just like, you know, wow. Quite a bunch a of, of characters. There's a lot of scenes like that where they just, you know, these, these guys uh, sort of tomfoolery and sense of humor, et cetera. Now, as as time goes on and uh, future generations pick up this book, what do you hope that the younger generations will get from your work? I I hope that people will gain a little bit of an understanding on what people go through during war. I hope that people will uh, 
we'll certainly interview their World War II relatives, those that are they're still with us that are passing away mm-hmm. at an alarming rate. I mean, I've interviewed 5,000 of these guys, and you know, there's very few that are left. And, and um, I hope that they do that. But I also hope that they recognize the contributions of the men of Iraq, men and women of Iraq and Afghanistan that that go that have gone back, you know, time and time again. And it's uh, sort of thankless. Their their stories are not really being captured at all, for the most part. Um, and I hope that people recognize the, those those efforts, and as well as the efforts of of other um, Americans that have been in battle, like Korea and Vietnam. Mm. So I, I hope that people, I think I hope that people can somehow um, relate to the book with their own family members in some way. That's what I think. Dog Company. I hope people get out of a company in my other work. Thank you. Can you tell our audience about the drop zone? And can you also sure. give yeah. our audience our, your um, website? You can go on Amazon.com, which has got a ton of, of uh, excerpts. But also my first website is thedropzone.org, which is an oral history website, a uh, virtual museum. And uh, there's a lot of stuff a lot of the stories that I've gathered over the years up there, as well as on my other personal website, patrickkodonnell.com. Thank you. Patrick, we are out of time, and this has just been such a wonderful interview. It has been great just having the opportunity to talk to you about the interviews that you've conducted and the beautiful story that you wrote, which really does a wonderful job sharing just a small portion of these very brave and courageous men's lives. Thank you so much for not only um, writing the book, but for just all the work that you do. It's so important that we have people like you that are out there telling the truth about what happened so that the future generations will understand what exactly has happened. Well, it was really a pleasure and an honor to be on the show with you today. Really enjoyed it. Oh, you're very welcome. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer. Have a great afternoon, everyone. <laughs>